Human beings love telling stories about the end of the world. All right, the top-rated show among U.S. adults currently is The Walking Dead, a show about zombies in the end of the world. The most critically acclaimed movie out right now is, is Arrival, a story about aliens coming to potentially threaten uh, human existence as we know it. Now, whether it's, it's zombies, aliens, uh, whatever it is, we, we are obsessed with the end of the world, with apocalypse. But this trend, it's not a new one. As long as human beings have, have told stories and written them down, human beings have told stories of the end of the world and written them down. But there is something new about our stories. There's something unique about the way our culture talks about apocalypse, the end of the world. Alyssa Wilkinson, a film critic for Vox.com, has pointed this out and has a book she's written called How to Survive the Apocalypse. And in that, she makes a really interesting observation about our apocalypse stories. Here's what she writes. Our forefathers conceived of Ragnarok or Armageddon as a judgment visited from on high, from on high upon mankind, a day of reckoning chosen and enacted by a god or gods. But today we imagine the apocalypse differently. We swapped ourselves into the position of apocalypse enactor. You and I have become gods. But that has come with a price. Now we can bring about the end. We are the authors of our own destruction. And so you watch most of our stories today, and and human beings uh, are, are at the center of the end of the world, the apocalypse, whether they're zombies, whether they're facing off against aliens. And God and God's intervention into history is largely removed from our stories of apocalypse, which might explain why Daniel 7 it just is really weird to us. All right, it's okay as I, if, I was as, as I was reading and you're hearing all these beasts popping up out of the sea, you're like, this is strange stuff. What are we reading? Is this in the Bible? Right? It's okay if you felt that way. It, it, it is strange to us. And if Daniel were to show up on our earth today and he, for he to watch The Walking Dead, he would think we're just as strange as we think he is strange. But this fact that Daniel 7 is strange to us, this fact that our apocalyptic stories don't tend to have God involved in them, maybe a hint that for us, when it comes to the end of the world, when it comes to apocalypse, there's something we don't see from within our culture, something we miss. I mentioned a second ago, we're in our last week of Daniel, um, and so we've spent time through the book reflecting on what does it mean to be a person of faith living within a culture that that doesn't share that conviction or doesn't um, share that faith and even maybe pushes back against that faith. Daniel is really a book about living faithfully in a hostile world. And the book of Daniel ends with six chapters of apocalypse, end of world stories. And we're only going to look at one because we probably can only handle that much strangeness. Um, but Daniel 7, it's a really good summary and picture of what all of the, the last six chapters of Daniel are about. That Daniel clearly thought if you're going to be a person of faith living within your context and your culture, you have to have an understanding of what's coming, of where the world is headed, of what's really going on in the world among us. And so we may read this and find it strange and weird, but Daniel, it was foundational to how he navigated life. That what Daniel sees may, may feel weird to us, but it, it shakes him to his, co- his core. He's anxious. He's alarmed. Why? What, is, what does he find so central that we find so strange? What are we, what are we missing? 
And so I want to walk through Daniel 7 and just sort of ask three, three basic questions. One is, what, why aren't we seeing the world the way Daniel does, right? Why are we still removed from Daniel, both in the way we tell our apocalyptic stories now and even just reading this text? Why aren't we seeing the world the way Daniel does? Secondly, what, what are we missing? And thirdly, how can we have eyes to see again? So first, why, why aren't we seeing um, and, and as much fun as it might be, and I would actually love to do this, spend time reflecting on why do apocalyptic stories not have God in them anymore, right? right instead of diving into The Walking Dead or Arrival or any of those types of, of stories, um, there's probably a better question for us to, to ponder for a moment um, at, within the context of a church. And that is, um, it, it gets at the same question as, as to why our apocalyptic stories have removed God. But a question I've, I've been asking a lot lately is, is why was it basically impossible not to believe in God 400 years ago? And yet today, many find the idea that there's, there's no God not only easy to believe, but actually an inescapable conclusion. All right, if you lived 500 years ago, it would have been a seismic shift for you to say there's no God, but not today. Today, that's, e- that's, that's an easy place to come to, even inescapable. And I think answering that question helps us understand a little bit why Daniel 7 is so removed from us, why we aren't maybe seeing what Daniel saw that there's a new reality we live in, a reality where it's very easy for us not to believe in God. And I think that has two implications for us if we're going to understand apocalypse, the end of the world. The first implication is, is we, we live in a world where um, belief in God is not necessary to make sense of the world around us. You don't need to believe in God to make sense of the world around you. That wasn't true four or 500 years ago. And whether it's because of technological progress, because of our understanding of science, we have a lot of confidence as human beings today that we can explain the world around us and we don't need God to fill in those gaps. And so there's a dominant feel within our culture that that's true, that we don't need God to explain our existence. Which means that... that the people around us who don't believe in, in God, it's not because they haven't found our apologetics unconvincing. It's not because we haven't done a good enough job with our arguments. It's, mean, it's, it's not even so much that they've, they've asked the God question and found the answers insufficient. It's, it's that there's not really a reason to raise the God question in the first place. Right? The world makes sense without God. I, I don't need him to explain or to give meaning to my life. And so Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he he explains it like this. We today, whether you believe in God or not, we live within what he calls an imminent frame. Before you fall asleep to that, let me explain it with with an image. Um, Many NFL teams, uh, like the hometown uh, where I come from, Indianapolis, they they build a roof over their stadium. Um, You might say that's because we're softer fans, um, because we don't want the elements to be a part of our football watching experience. Or maybe you could say it's because we're smart, right? If you can watch football in 70-degree weather, why would you not watch football in 70-degree weather? And so what what teams have done, right? They built a roof over the stadium. They closed the roof to keep the bad weather out. And what's happened over the last four or 500 years is we, we slowly close the roof to our universe. Right? We find meaning, we approach our lives as if, as if the universe is closed, as if all we see is all we get. But I want you to understand that's not just because science has progressed or a lot of people make the, the case, well, that's because we, science is so advanced you don't need God anymore. But the reality is it's entirely possible to, ex, to have scientific explanations and, and yet be that those explanations be compatible with a God who orders a universe a certain way. Right? Science doesn't necessarily shut the roof on God for us. No, what Taylor says, the Canadian philosopher, is that we took another step. 
So, right, so science began to help us explain the world around us without God, but then we took a second step, and that is we made ourselves the center of the universe. Right, all of human life now is about, for, for most of us, about finding our own passions, our own desires, living into how we want or how it is we want to live our lives to make ourselves happy. And so that leads to, to a second implication for us as we approach Daniel 7. That even those of us who believe in God, we live within a culture, within a universe that feels closed to us. Think of it like this in, in a couple ways. Not too long ago, I was sitting across from someone who was struggling with his, his faith, and, and he wasn't really having intellectual problems with Christianity. It basically made sense to him. He basically thought, you know, if I stack all the ways to explain the universe, Christianity is probably most true. Um, but what his struggle was is that, that God didn't feel real to him. God seemed distant, right? Like the roof is closed and God is somewhere else. I can't see him. I can't feel him. And that statement, even though there, there would have been distance of God that people would have experienced, that statement wouldn't have been uttered 500 years ago. And yet today I would say it's commonplace, not just for Christians, but for, for people who don't believe as well. That we operate as if the universe is closed, as if our entire life can be explained by natural causes and does not need to be explained by a supernatural being who is all around us and intervening in our life. Or think of it like this. Um, toward the end of my grandmother's life, she was suffering from Parkinson's um, disease, which meant she had a hard time walking, a hard time eating, sitting, doing, doing anything. And, and so we went out to eat um, together with our family to Cracker Barrel. And, and as we were there, and she was sort of struggling to get into the chair and struggling to walk, um, we were there for a while, and, and this guy comes up um, to our, our table, um, and, and he, he looked at my grandmother, he handed her a little cross necklace, and he said, um, he said to her, um, God wanted me to tell you that, that he sees your suffering, that he loves you, and he's going to deliver you from it. Now, there's two ways to experience that moment, and I experienced both of them. One is to be incredibly uncomfortable with the guy invading your Cracker Barrel space. <laughs> like, whoa, what are we doing here? Um, what's going on? Right? That, that's one. And, 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 or to even say, did God really say that to this guy? Right? Or is he just a nice person who sees someone suffering and just thinks of a word encouraging? And, right? It's all natural. Right? There, there's a part of me that, that looks at that and says, well, that's all that happened. Or right, the God of the universe prompted a human being to go up to another human being, a woman he had never met, to encourage her. And it, it, it so deeply encouraged her that um, when she died, that cross was very close and near to her. And my guess is most of us, we probably, we think of that moment somewhere in between, right? Either, yes, God God is there, he's present in a real way, and yet also, was he really? And what's interesting to me is is it's not just, so I'm a Christian experiencing that moment like that, right? Like like there's something missing, there's something more that should be present in that moment. And and as Christians, we experience that. And and I would say, if, if you're someone who says, you're right, and that's why I can't believe in God, that's why I have a hard time believing in God, I would say atheists and agnostics, our best artists within our culture, they have the same feeling that something's missing, something isn't all there, even though they don't feel the need to explain God. They, they look at the universe, and the roof is closed, and we just think, what if we opened it? Maybe there's more behind what we see. Two quick examples in music. Uh, Fleet Foxes in their song, Helplessness Blues. Here are the lyrics. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way that you see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. What's my name? What's my station? Oh, just tell me what I should do. 
you feel this, this pressure on the songwriter. He's saying, you know, I grew up, and we all grew up, right? At least if you're my age, you grew up, everyone telling you, you're a unique snowflake, you're your own person, find your own calling in life and live it out to your fullest. Find what makes you happy and go and do it. And yet the songwriter doesn't believe in God, basically comes to a place where he says, you know, I, I wish someone would just tell me what to do with my life. Because <laughs> then it would have meaning, then it would have significance, because something outside of myself would be coming in and telling me what, what a meaningful life is. Uh, second song, Wilco. This is, this, I encountered this song um, when I was studying to become a pastor, and I keep it close by me anytime I'm getting ready to preach because it's important for me not to forget these lyrics. Um, here's what Jeff Tweedy, again, not, not a believer, not a, a Christian um, in any sense, wrote, wrote these words um, in his song lyric, Theologians. Theologians, they don't know nothing about my soul. Oh, they don't know. They thin my heart with little things and my life with change. Oh, in so many ways, I find more missing every day. Right On the one hand, he's skeptical of people like me who say there's truth, there's a God who's invaded this universe, right? They look at me, there's skepticism, right? And rightfully so, to some extent. And yet at the end of the chorus, and yet every day, there's more missing. I try to explain my life, my meaning without God. And even though I can, I sense there's something missing. And so I would just say as an application point, as we jump into this moment where God peels back reality for Daniel, and it's very strange to us in Daniel 7, I would just say, are you, whether you believe in God or not, are you open to these moments where we begin to, we begin to sense there's something missing? The roof feels closed. I'm not seeing the whole picture. Right? Those moments on a mountaintop, a Kansas sunset. A child's laugh, a great movie, a good piece of art. Those are moments when our our hearts feel like, I can't explain all that's happening right here. There's something missing, something I'm not seeing. In Daniel 7, it's a part of what we aren't seeing. In Daniel 7, God is tearing open the roof to the universe, to us, to show us what's really behind this world in which you and I Live. And so that, that's where we start. We need to spend time. Why aren't we seeing? Why is Daniel 7 so strange to us? That, that's first. Second, so what, it is, what, what are we missing? And so as Daniel 7, as we jump in, we have to remember Daniel, was, he was a Jewish man, which meant um, that his, his race, his nationality, was part of a people that went all the way back to this moment in the Bible in Genesis 12 with this guy named Abraham. And God went to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want to make an entire nation out of you. And what I'm going to do with that nation is that nation is going to grow and expand and fill the earth. And and when it does, it's going to be a blessing to all the world. And you hear that in Genesis 12. And now you come along to Daniel and the story we've been looking at. And it feels like like there's a big distance between what God promised in Genesis 12 and what's going on in Daniel. Because Israel, this nation that God had promised through Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world, it's conquered. It's in exile. Its people have been forcibly removed from its home. Its temple has been torn down. Its city has been laid in ruins. The Daniel looks weak, defenseless, and powerless in the face of the world powers of his day. And yet, that's how you would read the world if you lived in a closed universe with the roof shut. 
And so what God is doing for Daniel in Daniel 7 is, is, is revealing to Daniel what's really going on in the world around him. And there is so much, uh, so much we can unpack in Daniel 7, but really just two things from verses 1 through 14 so that we're not confused and what, what's that horn doing and what's, what, what's going on? Like this is just weird stuff. There's two main themes that, that Daniel 7, 1 through 14 is about, that what, things that we miss in our reality as we look at it. First, um, the evil of this world, it's worse than you think. And so Daniel's vision, it starts with him on the, the, the sea, by the side of the sea on the beach. And what we have is, is not just waves crashing as they normally do, but what we have is turbulent, chaotic waters. And Daniel's terrified. And he's terrified because both Babylonian culture and Jewish culture view this, viewed the sea as a place of evil and of, and of chaos. So Babylonian culture, in the, the creation story um, that they told, um, the, the, the why the world existed, the sea was the place that was contained off from the rest of creation, and all of the evil was there. And so Daniel, he's, he's on the shore of, of evil. And if you read through the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, what you'll find is the sea repeatedly a pl- as a place of chaos, as, as, of evil, of destruction. And so Daniel begins in a place of terror because he's standing on the place, on the beach of Evil. And then what happens is from the sea, from these chaotic waters, four beasts come up out of the water. Hybrid beasts, grotesque half-creations, a lion with eagle's wings, a bear that, that eats its fill, a leopard with four wings, a, a beast that rises up last with iron teeth and ten horns. These beasts have a sort of Frankenstein quality to them. They're, they're pieced together from different animals, and Daniel is, is terrified. And so what do they mean? What are, they, what are these beasts? We could spend a lot of time on that question, but what they are, they're representatives of human kingdoms, human powers. And so, for example, many people see the lion with the eagle's wings as the nation of Babylon. The Babylon often used lion and eagle um, imagery to, to speak of itself. So there, we have a slide of a picture that was found in Babylon um, that, that's like this. It's a lion with eagle's wings. And, and the reference in Daniel 7 to the wings being cut off may be a refer, reference back to Daniel 4 when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled um, before God. However, the key to understanding Daniel 7, it's not by figuring out what exactly each of these beasts refer to, what kingdom is, is represented by. Right? That's important stuff. Christians have debated that endlessly for the last hundreds of years. Jewish interpreters have debated that endlessly. I don't want to wade into those interpretations and, and get into the forest and, and miss, or miss the trees for the forest. The, the forest, the point is, human kingdoms, human evil, it's far worse than you think it is. Daniel 7 is depicting the grotesque reality of human evil. And so when we hear the word Apocalyptic, we tend to think end of the world, but the word apocalypse means to reveal and to uncover. And what, what God is doing in this moment is, is Daniel has been at work in this secular kingdom in, in Babylon. And it's been hard, it's been difficult. Daniel's life has been threatened. And what God does now is he uncovers, reveals the reality of what Daniel is up against a beastly evil. That human evil, especially when we get together, it's far worse than even what it looks like on the surface, even when it looks in all of its grotesque reality, and we see evil. Daniel 7 is that when you, when you open the roof back up, it's actually worse than you think. And maybe you hear that, and that sounds disturbing, or it sounds naive. Or maybe it sounds like, well, Christians, then they, they see their opponents as beasts or as demons. Like, what is that? That sounds really, like really self-righteous. Um, 
But remember, Daniel is living within a culture that has tried to kill him, that has forcibly removed him from his house, from his, his friends, and yet he always treated them with respect and with dignity. Why? How? Well, this thought that human evil is actually, there, there's beastly powers underneath it that, that causes it to be even worse than what it, it is on the surface. The New Testament talks about that too. In, in, in particular, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 6. And here's what he says in verse 12 of Ephesians 6 and how he applies it to us as a church as to how we're to navigate a reality in which evil is far worse than we, we think. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For we, we Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the beast, Daniel saw in Daniel 7. We wrestle against those things, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul goes from there and he draws out two implications from that. First is that Christians, we, we cannot see our true enemy. Right? Other human beings aren't our enemies. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. Which is why Daniel could navigate a secular culture that even when they were fighting against him, even when they were threatening his life, Daniel didn't respond with violence or with um, his own version of injustice. That's why Daniel could serve the human beings among him who were doing evil to him because he did not war against flesh and blood. And that's why Paul says to us as Christians, we don't operate in the world the way the world operates. We operate differently. We don't join in the beastliness of evil. And so first, Christians, we can't see our, 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 our enemy, and, right? Our enemy's not flesh and blood. It's not other human beings. But secondly, we Christians, we fight with different weapons. And so Paul goes on in Ephesians 6, and, and he says the primary application of this reality is that we pray. That is our primary weapon as Christians, is prayer. Paul calls these Christians to take up the gospel of peace, right? Not to, not to fight back in kind, and I think this actually is, is, to me, the most healthy place to live when you think of evil in the world. Because, one, Christians, we're not naive about evil in the world. Right? We're not, we're not, we don't have our head in the sands. We, we, we know the beastly evil, right? Daniel 7. And yet, we don't see our fellow human beings as, as our enemies. We don't see them as, as, as the problem. And so we pray. We dwell on the gospel of peace and we enter into the world with a sense of hopelessness or a sense of hopefulness that God is going to deal with the evil in our world. That's the first thing that that Daniel is saying, uh, or that Daniel is showing, we we miss. We miss the true reality of of human kingdoms and and the potential evil they can participate in. But the second place that Daniel 7 goes is that um, judgment is on the way. That Daniel is seeing, as he's standing at the edge of these, the sea, he sees these four beasts, which represent these four kingdoms, human beings duking it out in all their power. And then Daniel, he sees two more things. The first is a figure he calls the Ancient of Days, whose clothes white as snow, his hair white as wool, on a throne in a courtroom. And this Ancient of Days, he opens a book, and he's going to judge humanity. And Daniel has no, uh, no qualms saying basically who this is. He's saying this is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Old Testament. Even though it's a human, they're human-like qualities, it's, God isn't really a guy with like white hair and white clothing. It's, it's an image. It's a metaphor. And God is, is shown as judge above all else. And so maybe for, for you, judgment, it's not, um, or is a reason that you struggle to believe in God. Um, you know, or, or in our culture, frankly, we don't talk about God as judge much. 
Judgment makes it sound like God is angry. Um, like, like people who believe in God and, and aren't going to get judged, well, they're better than the people who are going to get judged. Um, but before you dismiss this, and before you, you don't come to grips with the reality that God, what Daniel is saying is when the, the roof is closed off to the or opened up to the universe, God is going to judge us. This doctrine of judgment has, has two things I don't want us to miss. First, judgment, remember, it's good news for the oppressed. Right? Who's the beast attacking? It's attacking human beings. And God in Daniel 7 is saying there's a day coming when God's going to come and take the beast and kill it. <laughs> that if you say God is a judge is a terrible thing, what you're saying to the oppressed is no one's coming to help you. Right? The beasts are going to wage war against you and there's nothing anyone's going to do about it. So judgment is good news for the oppressed. And second, no one escapes the bad news of judgment. Right? Other, I, you're right, as Christians, we can't say, well, I'm saved, you're not. You have to become more like me if you're going to escape the judgment. That's not what happens in judgment in the Bible. And Daniel, in particular, lives this out. That Daniel, he's terrified both by the beast, but also by God coming to judge him. And so he's not on the, the beach cheering, yeah, get the Babylonians. Look at all they've done to me. You take, take down the beast. He's not saying that. In fact, you get two chapters later, as Daniel's reflected, had time to reflect on the end of the world, what's coming, God is judged. He prays these words in Daniel 9. I pray to the Lord my God and make confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Daniel knows God is judge is coming for him. He's coming for me. He's coming for you. And that should never fill our hearts with pride. It should fill them with repentance and with confession. And so Daniel, he sees the beastliness of human evil. It's worse than we ever imagined. Then he sees God, the Ancient of Days, coming as judge, to judge every human being in the world, to judge this world. And so we've looked at first why, why we have a hard time seeing the world as it really is. Right? We live in this world where we just, we just explain our existence, meaning without God... So point two, we've seen what Daniel shows we're missing when we do that. We miss God as judge, and we miss um, the reality and the brutality of human evil. So thirdly, how do we get eyes to see again? Uh, I mentioned that, that Daniel, he sees the four beasts, and then he sees two more things. He sees the Ancient of Days, which we've unpacked. It's God coming in his judgment. But secondly, Daniel sees this figure whom he calls one like a son of man. And here's what... Daniel says about this figure, he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now what's confusing about this figure, this son of man, is that this son of man figure sounds like a god. He comes on the clouds. If you read the, the Hebrew Scriptures, only God comes on the clouds. The Son of Man, He's given a kingdom that will last forever and includes all people. That sounds kind of like what a, a, the kingdom of God would have, right? A, a kingdom where the king lives forever and is over all of humanity. That sounds like a God. But what, but what makes this tr troubling or confusing is Jewish people, there's only one God. The Hebrew Scriptures, there's only one God. And we already had Him, the Ancient of Days. But now we have a second figure, the Son of Man, coming, who appears to be a God as well. And so how can there be, be both an Ancient of Days and a Son of Man? 
as God both? This probably was confusing to Daniel, but there is someone who is claimed to be the Son of Man. So in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this moment when the disciples of Jesus wanted Jesus to tell them his end of the world story, his apocalypse. And so Jesus told them, and he explained to them what to expect. And what he explained to them was, what you should expect is me. And it's all about Jesus as the center of the end of human history. And so he gets to this moment at the end of of telling the disciples what the apocalypse will be like in verses 30 through 31. And Jesus just goes right to Daniel 7. Here's what Jesus says. He says, they, the whole world, will see the Son of Man, will see me coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they they will gather his elect from the four winds, one from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Right, which makes sense because this explains why God, the God of the Bible, the Ancient of Days, is God and the Son of Man is, is God. But it also makes sense of how you and I can actually look at this, this Daniel 7 and neither be, be completely terrified or hopelessly discouraged. If you begin to see the world as it truly is, if your roof gets torn open, if you encounter the reality of the God of the Bible, there's no getting around it. You're going to encounter him as your judge. I want to encounter God in a a different way. Um, Probably so to you. Encountering God as a judge is not how we want to encounter him, but Daniel 7 makes it clear that is how you are going to encounter God. And that might even make sense of why, why we close the universe off. Right, why we, we close the roof, we want to make our own church choices, we want to run our lives as we see fit, so we, we can do what we think will make us most happy. And we think getting rid of God, the God of, of, of judgment, frees us. But does it? David Foster Wallace, an author, he wasn't a Christian, he was an agnostic, said no. You, you can get rid of God as, as your judge, but new judges take his place. So James Smith, a philosopher, summarizing David Foster Wallace's thinking and writing, said this about about what Wallace said about if you remove God as as judge. says, God is dead, but he's replaced by everybody else. Everything is permitted, but everybody is watching. So most of the time, the best salvation we can hope for is in behaviors that numb us to this reality. Drugs, sex, entertainment of various sorts. What Wallace says is we, we close our universe off to God, but what ends up happening is we, we get crushed by the judgments of others. And as much as, as I hear people say, I say this, right? I don't care what other people think of me. It doesn't matter, right? We do care. And it's crippling. It cripples us. And so we need to open the roof back up to see what, what it is we're missing, but we can't. Because God, our judge, has the book on us on everything we've done, everything we've thought, everything we've said. And those beasts rising up from the sea, they aren't just human kingdoms, they're my life. And yet, don't we want to live in the kingdom that Jesus, the Son of Man, talks about, right? The kingdom with no end that includes every person, every possibility of, of nation, tribe, tongue, language, that, lists, that lasts forever. And so on the one hand, our we want our eyes open to the world as it truly is, to see the world that we live in as one where God is all around us. But we can't open our eyes because God is our judge, and he has the book on us. And so the question becomes, okay, how do we get into the kingdom? Right? There's this moment where the, the Ancient of Days presents the kingdom to the Son of, of Man. It's this interesting moment. The, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man, or the Ancient of Days, gives the Son of Man 
the kingdom. So how does the Son of Man get the kingdom? The New Testament answers that question in Colossians 2, where Paul wrote this about Jesus and how he received the kingdom of God. He says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, right, from the beastly world, and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How did that happen? Well, for in Him, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Son of Man gets the kingdom, receives the kingdom by the blood shed on the cross. The Son of Man had the book of judgment that was, that was due for us, opened for him. He suffered the judgment that was due for us so that we could be in the kingdom that was rightfully his. He brought us out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of the beast, into his kingdom through his blood, which he made peace with by the cross. And so, friends, Jesus did not say, the kingdom of God, it's far off. It's, it's off in some distant future, right? It's post-zombie apocalypse. No, Jesus said the kingdom of God is, is at hand. It's breaking into our world now. It is a seed that has been planted in the ground and it is taking root all around us. Do you see it? Or have you closed your eyes? Let's pray.